Hi, this is Chris Finch. I'm lead pastor of City Walk Church. I want to thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you don't already know, the best way to stay connected with City Walk Church is with our app. Just go to your device's app store and search City Walk Church to find it. Whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus or you're just investigating faith, our hope is that this message will help you take your next step in that journey. If you're in the area, we would love to have you come join us in person. For more information or to plan your visit, check us out at citywalkchurch.com or on social media at WeAreCityWalkCA. Good morning, CityWalk. How are we doing? Yeah. We're glad you're here today. Um, we're just glad you're here. All right. Uh, let, let's, let's, uh, let's, I'm going to pray and start this morning before I, before I jump to the message at all. Uh, Jesus, we're expectant. We are needy, and we know that all those things can only, only be met through you. This morning, God, have free reign in this room, next door with our kids. Help us, Jesus. May you move, help me, help those who listen. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it all starts when we're young, doesn't it? We ask a whole lot of questions. That's just the nature of the game, right? Especially as young people. We want to know things, so our best option is just to ask questions. Um, You know, not too long ago, we can put the picture up. My family had the opportunity to visit the Grand Canyon. This This is me, my wife, and my three girls. We've since had a fourth, a little boy, Um, but uh, this was our family at the time. We visited the Grand Canyon, and we were talking up the Grand Canyon a great deal before this trip. So uh, we're talking about how the the Grand Canyon was so big, how it it was so impressive, so how we were so looking forward to seeing the Grand Canyon. And at some point in this conversation, it was here at the dinner table, my younger daughter, with a real perplexed look on her face, asked, Daddy? what does this big cannon shoot out? She just didn't understand, right? And uh, she had to ask a question to figure it out. And, um, you know, even as we grow up, the questions don't stop, do they? You know, we live in a world that is dominated by questions. Um, You go to the doctor's office, and boy, do they ask you questions. Why do I need to fill out the same form every single time I go to the doctor? I mean, what's changed? But we do every time. We're just peppered with questions. And we do them our way, too. We, we question our leaders. We question their affiliations, their, their passions. We question who they are, what they believe. We question the media who gives us the information for our questions. We even have huge companies on the Internet that their sole purpose is to answer our questions. That's the world we live in. But our questions are not all about where do we find pizza or, you know, who won the ball game last night. No, our questions a lot of times are deeper than that. We have metaphysical questions too. Questions like, what is the meaning of life? Who's ever pondered that one? Anybody? What about this one? What will make me happy? Now, you've probably never typed that exact phrasing into a search engine, but we've all gone to searches with that mindset. What about this question? Is there a God? And it's that last question that we want to kind of hone in on today. See, God's nature and God's existence are not a given fact in the society we live in today. Let's just admit it. We live in a a post-Christian world. 
So there's a lot of people in our society who question God, question his name, his motives, his characteristics, his care, his control. We question it all, his very existence. And all of, this room, all of us in this room, and even those who are watching on video, we've all grappled with those questions in the past. Many of us have come to very different answers. Which brings us to our text today, the book of Esther. You see, the book of Esther is a unique book. It's a history book. At its core, it's a history book. It's a retelling of the beginning of the Feast of Purim. Now, Purim is a Hebrew word. I don't like to use a bunch of foreign languages when we speak, but Hebrew, um, the Hebrew word Purim means lots or dice. And I think you could loosely translate it this way, chance. So really what the Hebrews have is they have an entire feast devoted to chance. Well, that seems kind of odd, doesn't it? But that's what the story of the book of Esther is about. It's a celebration and uh, in current, in current if, you were, if we were in a synagogue, the Feast of Purim is normally in mid, mid-March. If we were in a Jewish synagogue and it was the Feast of Purim, they would have food, they would have a lot of generosity to the poor, but they would also do a retelling of the story. A lot of times they'll do a dramatized retelling of the book of Esther. They'll have people dress up as the main characters. By the way, there's four. There's Esther, who the name's written after. It's Mordecai, her uncle. It's the king, and it's this guy named Haman. The people dress up as those characters, they act it out, and it's this big thing. This morning, we're not going to do a dramatized play, if you will, up here, but I am going to look for a little audience participation as we go through the book, all right? I'm sure you guys will do great. I'm not worried about that. But see, there's something else that's unique about the book of Esther. The book of Esther is the only book in the Bible that never actually mentions God. I want you to think about that for a second. The Bible is a book about God, but yet Esther is a book in the Bible that doesn't mention God. If you can search, his name, who he is, is never actually mentioned in the entire book. And it begs one question throughout the entire book. And this is the question that I want us to to continue to have in our minds as we look through Esther this morning. And the question is this, where is God? It's a fair question. And I think as we go through the text of Esther, Esther, you're going to really understand, it's a fair question. Never actually mentions God at all. Nevertheless, let's quickly walk through this this awesome book. And um, let's keep this question in mind. Where is God? So around 480 B.C., Persia was the mightiest nation on earth. It stretched from India to Ethiopia. And it was ruled by an historically noteworthy king. In the book of Esther, his name is King Asahurus. Now, that was his Babylonian name, and it's really hard to say. So we're going to use his Persian name this morning because it's much easier to say. And you've probably heard this name, King Xerxes I. All right? That sounds more familiar from the history class. King Xerxes I. He's the king in our book. And as you'll find out, Xerxes was a real class guy. All right? The book actually opens, the book of Esther, with Xerxes getting mad at his wife, Queen Vashti. Now, why did he get mad at her? Real simple. He got drunk with a bunch of his friends, and he wanted to parade his wife out in front of them like a peacock. 
When she refused, which she should have done, he got mad and just cast her aside like she was nothing. Like I said, he's a class guy. He's a good king. So at this point, this is where I need the involvement. I'd like you to shake your finger. Let's give, let's give the king some well-deserved shame, right? All right, there we go. That's King Xerxes. And Xerxes decides, eh, you know what, let's still ask her a question before we move on. So in the middle of this, here's a king just casts his wife aside. Where is God in that? For three years, Xerxes is going to live the bachelor's life. He's going, he's going about doing his business. And during those three years is when Xerxes had his most famous and most difficult battle of his, of his, of his tenure. It's called the Battle of Salamis. And if you're familiar with history, real life, you know, the Bible is not a myth- mythical book, right? These things happen in real life. The Battle of Salamis was fought in Greece. And this is the story, if, if you know the story of the, the 300 Spartans who held the gap, that's this battle. It was King Xerxes I who lost because the Spartans held the gap so the Persians couldn't go over the land route, and the Persian navy was beaten at sea by the Athenians. So at the end of this battle, Xerxes returns home with the taste of his own mortality in his mouth. Probably the first time he had really ever seen defeat. And he sought comfort in the arms of a new queen. So to select this new queen... They put on a really, really bad beauty contest. Basically, they went, the, uh, the authorities went throughout the entire kingdom and took the most beautiful women they could find, brought them back for the king to make his selection. But it was a little bit more in-depth than that. They would actually take these women, they brought them into the king's palace, and they had to prepare for a full year before they could even meet the king. Now, one of those young ladies was a girl by the name of Esther. Esther was raised, she was an orphan Jewish girl, and she was raised by her uncle Mordecai. Mordecai had a position in the king's government. He was one of the king's probably mid-level advisors. And here's what the Bible tells us, the book tells us about Esther. In Esther 2.15, during her full year of preparation, Esther gained favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her everyone who saw her. Because Esther was just favored, she got the best food. She got the best spot in the, in the palace. She was given the best servants. So let's go ahead. I think it'd be appropriate for us to give Esther a nice cheer here. Let's give her a good cheering section. Yeah, that's right. Let's give it up for Esther. Esther's awesome. So when Xerxes finally met Esther after that full year, it tells us in 217 of Esther, the king loved Esther more than all the other women more than all the other women. And the king made Esther his queen. Good for Esther. However, through all this, Xerxes was not aware that Esther was a Jew by birth. I guess that just wasn't on the application to be queen. They didn't have that filled out. But that's where we are. And as chance would have it, shortly after Esther was made queen, her uncle Mordecai overheard a plot in the palace. He was walking by, and he overheard plans for a palace coup between two guards. Mordecai found out about this. He informed Esther that this was happening, and Esther notified the king. Well, the king dealt with the problem, let's say it that way. And it was recorded in the king's book, but Mordecai was never rewarded for his faithfulness. Never rewarded. 
Again, we ask the question, where is God? Where is he in that? After all of this, the king promoted Haman, the Philistine, to be his second in command, assistant to the king, if you will. And um, let's go ahead, let's go ahead and do a boo for Mordecai, because he's just a bad dude. All right, let's do boo. Yeah, that's right. It's not often you get the boo in church, live it up. And um, so Mordecai was a really selfish dude with an incredible mean streak. I mean, mean. Mordecai loved, though, being second in command. And I'll tell you what he loved more than anything else. He loved that when he would walk out of the palace, all the servants at the king's gate would bow down to, to Haman. He loved it because he, you know, he was the man. The problem was not everyone bowed down to Haman. There was one guy who said, no, you're no God and I'm not bowing down to you. That guy's name was, can you guess? Mordecai. That's right. Mordecai would not bow down. And this made Haman furious. So naturally, Haman decided to murder Mordecai. I mean, it made sense. He didn't like Mordecai. I'm going to murder him. But, but Mordecai, like I said, had a mean streak. And Mordecai said, you know, it's going to take more than, than Mordecai, or excuse me, Haman had a mean streak. And it's going to take more than Mordecai's death to assuage his anger. So Haman was a go big or go home guy. He says, instead of just murdering Mordecai, I'm going to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the entire Jewish nation. Because that makes sense. It's a, it's a proportional response, right? And uh, so that's what Haman sets about to do that. First, though, he has to make, figure out what day he wants to do this. So he takes dice, or again, in Hebrew, they were called Purim. And I can see it like, almost like he's shooting craps in a back alley. He's throwing dice, and he's throwing these dice to figure out what day this terrible thing should happen. And as he goes, the, the 12th month of the year is what's selected. Actually, the 13th day of the month of that year. Now, since it was the first day of the year, their, their calendar started in April. So they're in April right now. Holocaust Day, because let's call it that. Holocaust Day is supposed to be in March. So it's a full 11 months away. Haman decides that's the day it's going to happen. He's a superstitious guy, and he's going to go for it. It's 11 months away, but chance has spoken. Next, Haman has to make it legal. So he goes to the king, and frankly, he played Xerxes like a fiddle. He told the king that the Jews were a threat to his authority. And he also promised the king to give them basically all of their money. So the king, being a good quality king, said, sure, I'll sign their death warrant. And right away, he sentences an entire race to destruction just because he's going to get some money for it. He's a good guy, this king. The following March, the entire Jewish race is going to be put to death. Again, we ask the question, where is God? promise it's there. Where is God in that? And as you might imagine, Mordecai and the rest of the Jewish people were confused by this new law that just popped out of the palace. So Mordecai thinks about this, and he plays his final card to try to save himself and his people, and he asks Esther to approach the king, hoping that 
Maybe he'll reverse course. Esther wants to help, but there's a problem. You see, the king of Persia did not like drop bys, not one bit, because no one, I mean, no one could just pay the king a surprise visit, not, in, not even his wife. That's just how it worked. It was a Persian law. The penalty for just doing a popover visit on the king of Persia was immediate execution. Yikes, okay? Now, the only chance you had, if you just... If you just did a surprise visit, the only chance you have is if you came into the king's court and he graciously extended a gold scepter or or stick towards you. That's the only chance you had or you would be killed immediately. Now, admittedly, it's a weird rule. I guess his no solicitor sign never paid off, so he had to step it up. Whatever the reason, the king was serious about not having surprise visitors. And there was a further problem. Esther hadn't been called on by the king in over a month. I guess the king was busy with other pursuits, I'm not sure, but he hadn't seen his wife in a month. So Esther knows that she just can't walk in, not without help. But Mordecai encouraged Esther to approach the king anyway. And there's two really important famous verses from the book of Esther. We're about to do them right now. The first is this. Mordecai said to Esther, who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. What a, what a powerful question. But I think Esther's response is probably even more powerful. Because Esther finally agreed, but she said this aloud. And I want everyone to read this with me. Esther said, if I perish, I perish. For emphasis, let's read that one more time. If I perish, I perish. So three days later, Esther stepped out to see the king. And in Esther 5.2, here's what happened. As soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she gained favor with him. The king extended the golden scepter in his hand toward Esther. Esther was safe. Let's give a big cheer for that one. That's right, that's right. I've got a good cheering section up here. Let's spread the love, guys. All right. But see, here's the problem. People didn't just come to see the king to say hi and to catch up. They, that's the reason he had, I guess, his draconian rule was because people came to the king wanting things. So the king knows. Esther didn't just come to say hello. The king says, hey, Esther, what do you want? I'll grant your wish. Hmm. Playing it coy, though, Esther only asked if the king and Haman would come to her home for a banquet that night. She knew that banquets and feasting was the king's thing, so she's trying to get the king to come. That night at the feast, again, Xerxes again asks Esther, hey, what do you want, Esther? I'll be glad to grant you whatever you want. Now, maybe she had a master plan. Maybe she just dumb lucked it. Maybe she was tapped into some wisdom that was above herself. But either way, Esther asked the king and Haman to come back again tomorrow. She has the king in her, in her home, drinking wine at her table. Nevertheless, she says, hey, come back tomorrow. The king agrees. He and Haman are going to come back for tomorrow's feast. And I, as Haman left the feast at Esther's home that night, he was walking on top of the world. He's telling himself, look, 
There's the king, and then there's me. And it's so much so, even the queen recognizes it. I'm the only one who was invited to the feast. He was excited until he got to the king's gate. And he saw Mordecai sitting, not bowing. And immediately, Haman's demeanor went from giddy schoolchild to pouty little brat. Because that's how Haman lived. So that night, Haman gathered his family and his friends at his home, and Haman recounted all of his riches and his wealth. He's basically doing a verbal show-off. But he ends with this in, in Esther 5.12. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she had prepared. And I'm invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. Still, he says, none of this satisfies me, since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. It seems Haman was a bit obsessed, right? So Haman's friends come up with a really wicked idea. They say, hey, look, why don't you do this? Tonight, have your servants build a gallows, 75 foot tall, big one. And in the morning, just go see the king and just ask him straight up, hey, would you give me permission to hang Mordecai? It's that simple. And Haman absolutely loved the idea. I mean, he loved it. This was his chance to kill Mordecai and to show off how awesome he was. So I think this deserves a boo, right? Let's, let's give a boo for Haman. Yes, right. He's a boo guy. He's a boo guy. And again, it also, though, asks our question, as the hammers and nails are going in the wood... Where is God? Where is God in that? However, while Haman snored, Xerxes tossed and turned all night long. So instead of counting sheep, the king had a better idea. He had his servant bring his record book and just read this boring record book to him. He, I, I guess he figured the monotonous, boring book would put him right to sleep. But it had the opposite effect. The king listened intently all night long, and as the sun came up, his attendant read about how Mordecai, the Jew, had saved his life years earlier, but yet nothing had been done to reward him. As soon as the sun was up, though, also Haman was walking into the king's court, and before, the, before Haman could speak up, the king spoke up first, and the king said this, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? Now, Haman, assuming the king wanted to honor Haman, said, hey, here's what you should do. The king should take a crown that was on his head and should take a robe that the, the king wore, and he should put this guy with the crown and the robe on top of the king's horse. Then, king, here's what you should do. You should have one of your highest officials walk that man around town and yell to everyone, this is, what, this is what happens to the guy the king wants to honor. Haman loved this idea because he's like, I'm going to be put up on the royal horse. But this is the king's answer because the king liked the idea too. And in chapter 6, verse 10, the king says, hurry and do just as you proposed. Take a garment and a horse for Mordecai, the Jew. Now, I got to tell you, when Mordecai heard that, he must have been 
mortified. Or, ah, I said it wrong. When Haman heard that, he must have been mortified. But I, I tell you, I, I can only imagine the shock that went off in his head as he heard that phrase. Thank you. Let's give it a, it's a little late, let's give it a good gasp. Yeah, I like that, I like that. All right, nevertheless, Haman followed the king's order to the T, and he spent the entire day walking Mordecai around the capital city, shouting how awesome Mordecai was. And after that experience, what would, we would all consider a rough day for Haman, he comes home to his friends and family, and his friends are like, uh, dude, you're in trouble. <laughs> you are in a lot of trouble. And just as they're speaking, the king's servants knock on Haman's door to take him to the feast at Esther's home. Now, look, I could try to recount it, but God, honestly, the book of Esther does a better job. So we're going to just read the next seven verses from chapter six. The king and Haman came to feast with Esther the queen. Once again, on the second day, while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to half the kingdom will be done. And Queen Esther answered, Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life. This is my request. And spare my people. This is my desire. Mm. For my people... Verse 4, and I have been sold to destruction, death, and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, she says, I would have kept silent. I love how she totally exaggerates that. She says, look, if we had just been sold into slavery, I wouldn't have bothered you and your importance. It appears that Esther can play the fiddle too. She's just playing up to the king's ego. And in verse 5, King Xerxes spoke up and asked Queen Esther, who is this, and where is the one who would devise such a scheme? And I, I can only imagine the scene in my mind. Esther answers. I can see her standing up. The adversary and enemy is this evil man, Haman. Whoa. Haman stood terrified before the king and queen. I bet he did. I bet he also needed a change of pants. I mean, that's just how it is. As you might imagine, the king was a little angry. And um, so one of the king's servants actually suggested, hey, um, Haman spent all night long building this 75-foot high gallows. Why don't we hang Haman on his own gallows? And the king also loved that idea. So the plot to murder Mordecai was twisted around, and Haman was executed by the king on the same on the same gallows. That's more than poetic justice. Furthermore, Mordecai was raised to the position that Haman once held. And the king allowed God's people to protect themselves against their enemies. So at the end of the day, after 11 months, God's people were glorified and God's enemies were humbled. God's people had won and God's enemies quaked. Let's go ahead and give one final cheer for that. That's right. So it begs us with our, with our final question, 
Where is God in the book of Esther? God's not mentioned by name in a powerful sermon or some eloquent prayer, but God is everywhere in this short, amazing book. I mean, if you think about it, he's there as Mordecai hears the plans for the palace coup. He's got, I'm sure he's in the bedchamber with the king, keeping him up all night long. And he's with his people in the middle of saving them for posterity. And just like God was everywhere in the book of Esther, I firmly affirm that God is everywhere here with us in our current society. You see, God stands in the middle of Afghanistan today, in the middle of our brothers and sisters there who are facing things that we can only imagine. God's in the middle of our neighborhoods, feeling the stress from house to house and the tension from person to person. God's in the doctor's office as we hear news that we do not want to hear. God's in this place today as we seek to lift up Jesus. God is everywhere present all the time. There's an old-time church word for this. It's called omnipresence. It comes from the Latin word omni for all and presence. You guys got that. So here's the, th- here's the idea. As omnipresent, God is all present. Now, I realize that there are people sitting in this room, watching, listening online, who struggle with the idea of a God who's everywhere all at once. It could easily come off, I get it, as a God who set up some type of mass surveillance system. But God's all-presence is not a shot at our individuality or, or personalities. Instead, God's presence is meant to be both a comfort and a, and a good, healthy confrontation to us. You see, we enjoy the warm love of a God who does not leave us alone as we walk the struggles of life. But we also know the hot passion of a God who deeply cares about us and is willing to help us make healthy choices. Now, the benefit of all God's present, God being all presence aside, I can guess what some of you are thinking. I, I can. It's why would we want to follow a God who has set up a mass surveillance state? And honestly, on its own, I think that's a fair question. Because here's a truth that's important for us to understand. God's all-presence by itself is not the reason to follow him or embrace God. It's not. See, the story's deeper than that. And the story of Esther has more richness. Because God's not only everywhere, God's also in total control. God controlled the outcome of Haman's dice, how they landed in in the 11th month. God controlled the outcome from that historical battle at Salamis in Greece. God even controlled the promotion of Haman to be second in command. And God still controls very much this world today. God is in control of COVID and all the stuff that goes along with that. God's in control of the traffic lights that make you late or early to your your appointments. God's God's in control of the fire and the flood, right? Even though I kind of wish we'd be in the middle of that pendulum for a minute, right? Um, God controls all this stuff, the large and the minute outcomes of our lives. There's another old church word for God being all in control. It's omnipotent. Now, omnipotent means that God is all-powerful, potent, And, and I, this, is a, this is a tough one, right? God being in control. I know that there are people who struggle with this. Because 
In, in some people's mind, this makes God a despot. But it's really, that's not true. God is not some cosmic tyrant. No, it's, it's really awesome. Let, let, I want to talk for just a second about what God being in control really means. What that means, because I think we get it backward and, and we mess this up. So here's the first thing. God's, God controls things his way. Now, we don't necessarily like these things, but it's true. He does not always move the way I would or you would. That's just, that's just part of the game. That's God's control. And, and here's what a lot of people do. Even good Christian people who, who want to follow God, they assent to this doctrinal belief or this belief about God that, yes, he controls all things. But in the next mental breath, we try to create a construct that God can only act in. Here's this framework that this is what God has to do. So we, we agree that he's in total control, but here's how he has to control. That's not how it works. God is above us and beyond us because, quite frankly, a God you can control is no God at all. Now, do I like that all the time? No, but that's a healthy truth. But here's another one. God moves when he decides. His timing is seldom my timing. Seldom. And, um, and I doubt it's yours. Because here's something that's important for us to understand. The only expectation that we can place on God are the expectations that he places on himself. Let me give you another tough truth. We're just laying them on here. God is perfect. Now, I can, I can see the warning signs going off in people's heads. I, I've even seen the debates this week on Facebook about this very thing. Just because God is perfect doesn't mean that all things work out perfectly. Let me, let me further explain that. Because we live in a still, a still broken world. See, we want things to turn out perfectly, don't we? And of course, by perfectly, I mean my definition of perfect. That's what I want things to turn out to. But that's not how it works. Things will not be perfect until God makes all things new. And, and no spoiler alert needed here, that hasn't happened yet. Our world is broken. Yet because God is in total control, we can rest assured that he is working things out toward his perfect ends. Nevertheless, I, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, why would we want to follow a God who is in control of everything and rules like a dictator? And I, that's a tough one. Because it, it, it comes from a point of view that, that just doesn't, doesn't jive with where God is. And here's why. Because they're right. Just because God is all in control... That's not the reason that we should follow him either. Just because God is everywhere, that's great. He's also in control, that's great. But what matters more, where the story really gets deep in the book of Esther, is not just that God is everywhere, it's not just that God is in control, it's that he also cares deeply about the outcomes of life. What matters is that God also cares. See, in the book of Esther, God cared about the safety of Esther as she stepped in front of the king. God cared about the security of the entire Jewish nation. And God also cared about keeping 
his people alive and the, blood, the line of Jesus so that all of us could enjoy forgiveness. In the middle of danger and doom, God cared about Esther and the Jewish people. And nothing has changed in the last 25 years. God cares about us too. See, today God cares about you. He cares about your family, and God cares about your situation. And that is a fact. That fact is compelling. What really matters is not that God is simply everywhere or that he's in control. What matters is that God also cares. Now, I realize that there are some people here who do not feel comfort from that statement. They may feel disappointment and pain, and I've got to tell you, I felt pain here too. And some of you have felt pain far worse than I have. Does God, we question it, does God really care? That, that, that pain's not lost on me. And it, if I could be so bold, that pain's not lost on God either. See, here's where we get in trouble with this idea of God caring. I think we, we, we create this like pseudo weird world where again, God has to care our way and, and all this, where really what we need to look at it like is God as a really good, good father. Now, that illustration may, may not connect with some people in this room. Maybe you don't have a great family background. And I, I, I hate that for you. But, but if we could take a minute and just kind of think about God as a really good father, I think some of this makes more sense. I mean, think about it. As a parent, or even if you don't have kids, is it, is it good for a parent to meet every single one of their children's desires? Now, as a parent of four, I can tell you that would just be a terrible idea. Even if I had the resources, which I don't, for my, especially my oldest daughter, I do not have those resources. But uh, even if I could, it would be a bad idea, right? And, and I don't think any of us would say, all right, yeah, you're wrong, Chris. No, I mean, we understand that. But it goes a little further than that. Does it, is it wrong for me as a parent to let maybe my kids suffer some natural consequences, especially when they're small, to help them learn how life works? No, I, I think that, that's part of being a good parent too, right? We want to train our kids to make those right choices. God's the same way, but it goes a little further. And this is where I want to key in. A good parent, our God, sometimes they just love us through, through pain. So here's the fact. We live in a world that's just messed up. My daughter the other day, she came in the house just freaking out. And she had, and for good reason, she had a twig. I, we're still not totally sure what it was, but it was huge, stuck in her leg. I mean, it's stuck in her leg. Now, look, she wasn't doing anything bad. She wasn't in a place she was forbidden to go. She's just hanging out in our backyard. But she got this thing stuck in her leg, and she was losing it. Now, look, we took, the, we took this twig. I really don't want to call it a thorn. It was a twig. We, we pulled it out, and she was hurting. We knew she was. There was very little we could do besides just bandage it up. All we could do as parents was just hold her. And love her through it. And that's really where we are in life, right? Our world is filled with all kinds of thorns and twigs that stick in us every possible way. 
Because our world is broken. And a lot of times, God just loves us through it. That's just part of the deal. You know, what it comes to is our question of it originally is where is God? Where is God? And I, I believe the answer is He's right next to you. He's watching all that we go through. He's in control of what goes on in and around our lives. And He cares for us deeply because He's involved. And I think when we step back from our own perspectives for a moment, I think it's a lot easier to see all the care and the goodness that God has poured into our lives. Sometimes when we're mired in the middle of the forest, it's hard to see everything else. But when we step back, it's easy. And and frankly, if you need a more concrete example of God's love, let's talk about sacrifice. I want to share Romans 5.8 with you this morning. It says, but God proves his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. And that is an awesome truth. You know, hopefully you've never had someone threaten to exterminate your whole family. I'm going to go out on a limb and say likely that's never happened. But all of us face a, a situation that's really far worse. Separation from God because of our sin forever. And because God is involved in the world, not just in control, because he's involved, he did not idly sit by and let us march on to judgment. No, instead, out of love, God took action. He sent His Son, His only Son, to die for our sins. He did that for us, for me, for you. And God continues to shape the events of our lives to draw us to Him. What an amazing gift. It's not by chance that you are hearing this today. It's not. God is everywhere. He controls all things. And he is involved. He cares deeply about drawing us to him. So really, here's my challenge as we wrap up. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe today is the day where you say yes. You know, maybe as I was just sharing about how God loved us and sent his son, maybe there were some lights going off in your head and you need to make a decision. If you're here in the room, there's a card in the pew in front of you that says, make a decision. We tried to make it super simple. And take it, fill that out. There's a next step table immediately behind the sanctuary. Go talk to someone after, just hand them the card. If you're online or listening on a podcast, go to, as, as Sharice even said earlier, go to citywalk, one word, citywalk.cc, and you can find our virtual make a decision card. No matter what avenue you use, if you fill one of those out, someone from our church will contact you, not to to try to bear in on you, but to help you. If you have questions, we want to answer them. If you need support, we want to provide that. If you're this morning sitting here and you're, you know, you're like, ah, you know, I walked away from church a while ago and I'm I'm not sure about this whole thing. I, I got burned a little bit. Maybe this morning is the time where you need to kind of lower the stiff arm just a little bit. Because you just heard about how God orchestrated huge events because he cared about his people. And God cares about you just the same. He orchestrates amazing events in your lives so that you can be close to him. 
Maybe, maybe this morning you say, I, I, I need to get connected. We have a card for that too, by the way. It's the Get Connected card in the pew in front of you. Same, citywalk.cc, click Get Connected. Our church wants to walk with you into a growing relationship with Jesus. And we will we'll do what we can to help walk that faith journey with you. And last but not least, as we close, if you're a believer this morning, maybe you're a faithful follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you to share this truth with someone this week. Ask God to give you an opportunity to share, hey, God cares about you. Share your story about how he's cared for you. Let's see what God does. Because it's great that God's everywhere. It's even better that he's in control. But neither one of those things really matter if he doesn't care. And praise God he does a whole, whole lot. Let's pray together. Lord, I love you. You are great. You are good. And God, you deserve all that we can give you back. Help us this morning as we process your truth. I pray that your spirit would work in our lives. That, Lord, people who don't know you would trust you today. The people who have been struggling about where they are with you, they would, they'd come back. And God, those of us who have been following you, Lord, that we would embrace your care, your love, and march forward. We, we love you, God. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.